This episode of Light Source is brought to you by Squarespace.com. For fast, easy publishing of a professional website, check out photographers.squarespace.com/ls. And when you sign up, use the promo code LS1 to receive a 10% discount. Hi, this is Phil Braden. I'm the product manager for Sakonic Meters and Pocket Wizard, and you're listening to Light Source. Welcome to episode 77 of Light Source, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, the website that introduces photographers to portrait and studio lighting techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer with iStockphoto.com. Now, in today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about holiday gift stuff that you might want to receive. Uh, we have Phil Braden from the Mac Group. He is the product manager for the Pocket Wizard line and Sakonic brand light meters. And you know, before this episode, Bill, I kind of thought that... Uh, Pocket Wizards are pretty straightforward, and you, know, you plug it in, and it triggers your light. But I guess I really never thought about it, that there's there's so much more than just a little wireless connection to your lights. Absolutely. The whole side of it for triggering cameras as well. I mean, we saw Chase Jarvis experimenting somewhat with that, but I really think it could open up a whole world of possibilities if you really take a hard look at this product. Pretty cool. And he talks about like how guys like us, you know, we think about them mostly as just strobe triggers, but... Yeah, you know, the the sports industry guys think about them so much more because they have lights up in the ceilings at the stadiums. They'll put cameras in odd locations where they couldn't be standing during the game because of safety reasons or just that there's not enough space like in a hockey net. And they're able to, to trigger stuff and all the, the unique things that they've done with the Pocket Wizard line so that you can have 30, 40, 50 photographers on the sidelines and, and nobody tripping over each other and stuff. It's amazing the technology that's involved with it when you think about it. When I've thought about it in the past, I've always thought it was a pretty straightforward, you just push the button and the light flashes. Yeah, I think everybody's going to be pleasantly surprised at uh, all the things that we touched on in this interview. Not to mention the Sikonic stuff, which... Exactly. Things like color metering and all of that is, is kind of interesting to think about as well. So, And he really goes into depth a lot about uh, how to use your light meters and what you would use a light meter for. So all you guys that have had questions about light meters in terms of, you know, what's incident, what's reflective, what's this and that, you know, how do you use it? You know, LumaDisc up, you know, sphere up and you know, where all of this technology came from. Um, he really covers it. He, he knows his stuff really well. So it's good that we got him on the show. Yeah. Uh, as a result of talking about both these product lines, though, this episode is probably going to be one of our longer ones. So grab a hot chocolate and uh, snuggle up next to your Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you. <laughs> I, was gonna, I was waiting for you to say snuggle up to your spouse as you listen to this episode. That's right. but- yeah, I, I can just, I can just hear the snoring, you know, because so many of our spouses love to listen to us talk about photography. Yep, that's uh, that's what I started to say, and I was thinking the same thing. My wife, uh, <laughs> not as interested as I am, but it's definitely good material. Before we get into that, while we're talking about Christmas and stuff, I actually stumbled on this article by mistake, as tradition with setting up the Christmas tree. You know, you plug the lights into the wall. You go, oh, the whole string works. That's great. And then you start stringing up the tree, and then you plug it in. And half the string doesn't work. <laughs> right. So in my quest of trying to figure out what's wrong with this string of lights, I there's a, an article on Digital Photography School called 20 Christmas Light Photos. Probably not what you're thinking of. It's, it's not 
Christmas lights out in someone's front yard and it's not Christmas lights hanging on a tree. It's creative uses that people have done. They kind of wrap themselves in Christmas lights or dress themselves up as a tree or even did like some really <laughs> cool portraits where they took and turned all the lights off. And like there's one of a, a couple that's kissing and they have a multicolored string of lights that's kind of like wrapped around like their head and their body and stuff. And it, it kind of gives a really cool light painted effect. There are some pretty interesting portraits in there. You know, it's cool to watch people get kind of creative with unique light sources like the Christmas lights. I have some ideas that I want to play with myself here. I was actually at Target the other day, and I was looking to get a string of LED lights to replace the ones that that wouldn't light up on my tree. (laughs) And I found these LED rope light, which is about like the thickness of like a, a small rope or something. I think it's nine foot long or something ridiculous like that. And it has LEDs inside of them. So I'm going to be playing with that and see what kind of stuff I can come up with. I think that might make an interesting interesting look. And the nice thing with the LED lights, probably be benefit working with a model, is that you wouldn't burn them. Yeah, which is always nice. You don't want to burn your models. We also have another quick segment here on the intro while we're talking about gear. Joining us in the intro here tonight, we have with us Rich Leg, a Light Source alum. Thanks for joining us, Rich. We have a couple questions for you tonight. Oh, thanks for having me back. I've been following you on Twitter. Your Twitter address is twitter.com slash legnet. Is that it? That is it, legnet. L-E-G-G-N-E-T. Okay, so if anyone wants to follow along as well, you've been Twittering about a new toy that you were probably one of the first ones to have. Tell us what you got and what you think of it. Well, the morning of November 25th, I got a phone call from my contact at my local uh, camera store and he says, hey, I got a 5D Mark II. We just unboxed them. I got one here for you. So I uh, changed my plans and headed down. And so I'm now, I think today is three weeks that I've been shooting exclusively with the Mark II. All right. Now your previous camera to this was the Mark I 5D? Yeah, the, the original 5D. And that's what I've used for my, you know, my primary camera for almost two years. And probably 95% of my uh, stock portfolio has been shot with the 5D. So you're going up in a size then at iStock. Oh, yeah. And, and <laughs> when I placed the pre-order for the 5D Mark II, in my mind, I could go to 2XL. iStock has uh, added 3XL starting the first part of 09. Right. And the uh, Mark II is a, a camera that can shoot triple extra large images. So that's Check just that a out. bonus for me. Ooh, that's really nice. Yes. So the other thing that it does well is it also does video. Do you have any aspirations of playing with the video or doing any kind of uh, stock video work with this? You know, I've thought about it. I know of some people that are planning to use the Mark IIs for doing stock video. To be honest with you, I would have the camera sitting right here in front of me if it did not do video. I'm such a stills guy and not really a video guy. I haven't got that bug that it wasn't an issue for me. I've played around with it, I will say that, but I kind of feel over my head with it in the video side. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we have a bigger uh, pixel size. We have the video that's not a big selling point for you. What other features have been things that, since you've been playing with it, you've said, wow, this is really awesome? Okay, here's what sold me on it uh, right off the bat, was in my mind, there were all the rumors on the Mark II. I said, if this thing's minimum 17 megapixel, uh, so I can have two XL images on on iStock, if it's minimum 17, I'm going to pull the trigger on it. When it came out at 21 megapixel, that was huge. Secondly is when they came out and started stating what it would do with low light, high ISO performance. That's a, a very big deal. And just within the last two days, I had a, an image accepted into my stock portfolio, uh, set a new record for me on ISO. I had a, a natural light uh, image 
at ISO 800 accepted. Wow. But, but, but realistically, if I put that image up on my screen at 100% at 800, it looks more like a 320, maybe even down under uh, around 200 ISO on my original 5D. Man, wow. that's huge. That that's buys all kind of light. Here, here's, here's where I look at it is, you know, my studio work is all ISO 100. Right. So so the, uh, the improved sensor uh, light performance isn't an issue for me in the studio. But when I'm outside and I'm shooting uh, reflector-lit portraits or uh, doing stock work, I do a lot of outdoor stock work when the weather's good, lighting with reflector. And most of those I'm shooting with a 70 to 200 F4L. And so if I'm at 200 zoomed in, uh, camera shake is an issue. Camera shake because I'm, I'm keeping my ISO, generally trying to keep it under 200. Now I did one last Friday and I was shooting at 800 on my ISO. So you look at that and say, wow, two to three stops improvement. That's huge. And I put all that into shutter speed. So instead of shooting it at 160th of a second and trying to go monopod or tripod and keep the camera still, I'm now shooting at uh, 250 or higher on my shutter speed. So I'm able to lock the uh, motion. And I'm not throwing images out. I noticed this last Friday. I wasn't throwing images out for camera shake, which has always been... You know, you're always wrestling with keeping the ISO low enough, but keeping the shutter speed high enough. So that could save you on your lens purchases as well, because you wouldn't have to be investing in 2.8 or 1.4 glass. You could probably get away with buying F4 glass and not have to worry as much with that whole camera shake. And I've scratched off the uh, 2.8L 70-200 on my list, Hmm. because I feel that the extra stop I picked up, or even a couple stops you'd get with the IS version, I can make up for it now just by rolling the ISO up. And looking at the images, and I'm not an iStock inspector, you know, someone like you would have to look at them, but (laughs) I feel that we're good up to about a thousand ISO with this camera for stock imagery. Wow. And probably I'd also like to just add in there as well that, you know, even though you're saying about ISO 1000, it's probably at those higher ISOs that it's really critical that you nail your exposure and everything to make sure that you're not pushing the file as you get back to the desktop as I, well. I will say that. Absolutely is, um, you know, exposure's king on that. And, you know, when I pulled these ones out that came out, I don't think I was off by less than a quarter of a stop adjustment in my raw conversion to what I actually ended up with my final image. Cool. Before we cut off here and get into this interview that we have, I was listening to another podcast today, and they were talking about a black dot problem. Yeah, if you were to Google, you know, Canon 5D black dots, uh, you'll get probably thousands of results. There's an issue that that came out uh, day one, the camera was in people's hands. Some users have noticed that this time of year, they're taking pictures of their Christmas tree right off the bat, testing the camera out. And if you got blown out highlights, small blown out highlights against a dark background, right next to that highlight to the right on a horizontal shot will be a few pixels of black. A very predictable pattern they're they're showing. I can't tell you how many people are experiencing it. There's people that say that every 5D does this. Guys, I have spent too much time trying to create this problem on my camera, (laughs) and I have been unable to create this. Canon has made a note acknowledging it and saying that they are going to have a solution. So I'm I'm hoping to see a firmware upgrade that's going to be able to take care of this. Great. So what what are some of the biggest improvements that that you've picked up on in terms of handling and so forth? You know, I will say, uh, using the original 5D, I could, you know, use that in my sleep. I've shot so many images with it. Putting this one in my hand feels like the original 5D. Big things in feeling. The rubber gripping is better. It's more of a matte, rougher finish on the magnesium. But right off the bat, the biggest thing, the improvement in the software and that nice, big 640 by 480 screen on the back. Dang. Um, (laughs) The screen is incredible. And then the the processor, the update there is, is quicker. 
as far as just even formatting cards or doing uh, menu functions. And then probably the other thing is, is some of those new features I think that came out with on the 50D, the uh, quick menu and stuff like that. I find that features I never thought would be a, a selling point for me, I find I'm relying on every time I shoot. So just the upgrades on the software. And, you know, the, the original 5D is a pretty slow camera at three frames per second. This one's just under four. It's crazy that four frames per second seems fast after all the images I shot at the, uh, at the original 5D. <laughs> right. Excellent. Well, folks, there's the word on the Canon 5-whatever. <laughs> the Canon 5D Mark to you, Nikon guy. <laughs> so thanks so much, Rich, for joining us and uh, filling people in. I'm sure there's a lot of perked-up ears this holiday season especially. So. Appreciate yeah, it. they can get one. They seem to be a little hard to get, but I'm really pleased with it. Excellent. Phil is the product manager for Pocket Wizard radio transmitters and Sakonic meters. Phil, thanks for joining us tonight. Happy to be with you. Well, let's start off with Pocket Wizards first, because it, it's such a, a popular product, and in the genre that it is, it's kind of like the big daddy of the industry. It really is. Tell us a little bit about Pocket Wizard and what you guys do for the three people that are listening that aren't aware of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pocket Wizard, is, it's literally the gold standard of triggering devices that keep all of your wires in your bag and off the floor and out of the way and allow you to, to fire off cameras or flashes at a great distance, up to 1,600 feet, actually, at just the push of a button. One of the things that we just did recently was a relay mode video. You may have seen it where you can press a button on one of the pocket wizards and fire a camera, which then fires strobes, all with real ease, and you're not tripping over things. And it's just really simple. They have a, a reputation of either they work or they're broken. <laughs> That's a good reputation to have with a product. Absolutely. You mentioned just before we began recording that Pocket Wizard had an interesting history. Do you want to give us a little background on the product? Yeah, this took actually a little beer to, to coax out of it. <laughs> it actually sort of started out in, in a bar. One of the guys who is the brains behind things, a guy named Jim Clark, was working on some products. He was up in Vermont and met a friend of his he went to school with who had been working with a photographer named uh, Jack Bingham, who's in New Hampshire, and became a part of the development. It turns out that Jack was trying to take a shot of a, a building exterior, and he needed to use some flashes, and in order to get the shot that he needed for the whole building, they had to be across the road, but they couldn't bring their flashes with them, so they had to fire the flashes from across the road, and first attempts, they tried to hardwire, and cars would go by and drag the wires down the road and lights <laughs> and everything else with them. That sounds like one of our shoes. Yeah, it does bad. <laughs> they tried a, an earlier type wireless device, which was not very good. They hardly got a, a signal across the street. Jim was talking to his friend over beer, and he was relating all of these problems and Jim had been working on a, a ranging system, a sonar ranging system which had a remote trigger in it. And he said, you know, I could probably adapt this for what you want to do. So they actually did it. He uh, showed it to Jack. Jack liked it a lot. They started working on that, and that's the beginning of the first Pocket Wizards available. Nice. If you want to fast forward up, about the mid-90s, they had the basic Pocket Wizard, the Flash Wizard, available, and they were getting a little bit of attention. But it turns out that Jim, once again, was trying 
to work on marketing some of this stuff, and he happened to be at an NBA final where he was showing the stuff off and getting some kind of attention. And Bruce Hornsby happened to be playing the halftime during the thing. In the, as the halftime went off, they're pushing his piano off the, the court, and they run into a big bundle of wires, which just happens to be all of the hardwired stuff that went to the flashes in the ceiling. Oh, no. And one of the roadies thought, well, you know, they, we, they got all tangled up, pulled out his knife, took care of the problem. Oh, man. And all of a sudden, he had full flashes. <laughs> Jim caught hold of this thing and found out what was going on and happened to have a full set of pocket wizards, and they rewired instantly. They put pocket wizards on the lights and back down on the cameras and shot the whole rest of the game, and everything was fine. That's one of those, and the rest is history sort of things. That's they turned out to be the darling of the sports shooter industry. That's a great story. <laughs> Yeah, they, in 96, went down to the Olympics down in Atlanta and started, I'm sure you probably know about the custom IDs and things that you can have. As Pocket Wizards became really the thing that everybody's using, they had 16 channels, and you started bumping into things. You start taking pictures and affecting everybody else's equipment, and they had to find a way to let a photographer work his own stuff and only his own stuff. So they came up with the idea of creating a specialized subcarrier signal within the regular signals and assigning those. There's a book up in Vermont that you might have your name in with your own little ID number. In. And they started doing that at the 96 Olympics. Okay. They were down there with a booth and they were selling stuff and a computer and assigning you a, just like having a star named after you, I guess. Oh, so it's totally unique then across the entire product line. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. So then at the end of the 90s, Mac Group, who I work for, took over the marketing of Pocket Wizard, and they happened to be also the marketers of Sakonic Meters. And we ended up with a marriage made at Mac. Uh, <laughs> They took a look at this wonderful triggering device, and they took a look at these meters and said, golly, wouldn't it be great as if, if you could push the button on the meter and it would fire flashes? And Jan Letterman, the owner of Mac Group, got the, the two parties together, and they thought that was a great idea, and they started working on some stuff. Oh, right around 2001, uh, the first meters rolled out. That would be the, uh, the 358. Okay. Marketing. It's a great meter. And the 608 Cine were rolled out at the same time and took a module that LPA, Pocket Wizard, made. And another one of those rest is history things. And that's really where we are from here on out. The, the meters have gotten better as we went along with more and more features. Pocket Wizards have remained compatible throughout. So anything that you bought, oh, I don't know how many years ago, 20 years ago? The first four channels that you have on your Pocket Wizard, the classic channels are compatible throughout the line. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. If you have something really old, it still works. Well, now let's talk about the current models. There are two of them? Yes, the Plus 2, which is our entry level, and I think I was just saying that we actually have a rebate on it right now. Four channels, fairly simple operation. It's a transceiver. It came from the original, earlier, Plus model, and before that, the Classic. But the Plus 2 is both a transmitter and a receiver, and it knows when it should be that. So you can put it on top of your camera and fire it off. And if it gets a signal through its foot, it knows it's a transmitter. And if you have anything plugged into the top, let's say a flash or another camera, it knows it's a receiver. So it does that all by itself. So whatever you happen to reach in your bag and pull out, whatever you needed, you got it. You don't have to figure out with, you know, look at, is this a transmitter or a receiver? Oh, okay. 
That makes it nice. For the, the Multimax, it is also a transmitter or receiver. So now what is the difference between the two, and what are we looking at in terms of a price difference between the two, as well as some of the features that are in them? Well, the Plus 2 is the one that we just sell the most of and are used the most widely. They're usually at about 188 at a price point in a store. Right now, like I said, we do have the $25 rebate. Four channels, transceiver. It does an interesting thing called a relay function, which is what we made that uh, Jack Resnicki behind the scenes video with in that the plus can be a transmitter and receiver at the same time that's really cool so you can trigger a camera with this device yes well both of them you can trigger a camera or a flash most of your guys think that these are flash triggers right i would say probably half the use if you go over to the sports world they know them more probably as camera triggers is that right wow yeah because it, it allows you to place a camera remotely somewhere where you just cannot go and fire it off as much as you want. We're talking about doing another video, topic of which would be firing a camera remotely, and we're looking at a wedding situation. We've talked to some people about it, where you can place cameras where you normally couldn't go. That's or a great idea. really embarrassing to go. All right. And you have a pocket wizard on top of your camera, and while you're taking a picture in the front, it's taking pictures at the same time in the back. That's a great application. Oh, neat. Yeah, there's uh, actually on on our Pocket Wizard blog some months ago, we had a gentleman who was taking basketball pictures with a wide-angle lens and the floor pointed up the basket and a 7210 lens in his hand. And while he was taking captured 7210 for that instant, he was taking wide-angle shot floor up, same time. Wow. Beautiful shots. So basically, he's being a second shooter for himself. Exactly. Let's go to basketball for a second and talk about the Multimax. You may or may not know that there are a limited amount of flashes that can be used in a basketball arena. If you look around the floor with all the photographers, you won't see a flash on the camera. Right. But there's flashes happening all the time. So the flashes are all on the ceiling, and they're all triggered by pocket wizards. And every camera has a delay function. When you press the shutter release button, there's a release sequence that happens before the shutter opens and the picture's actually made. Every camera's different. And one of the cool things about the Multimax is it can time that difference into the system. Oh, wow. You put the Multimax on top of the camera, you run a cord for that particular camera into its motor drive, and you start taking some pictures, and it will actually tell you what the delay time is. Oh, man. Pretty amazing. That is pretty neat. At that point, you can build that number, that delay time in, for firing the flashes in the ceiling. And what will end up happening is every time one of those flashes fires in the ceiling, seven or eight cameras could be firing with it at the same time. They're all using the same piece of light or or more, depending on on what's set up. It's an amazing thing. That is pretty amazing. With Multimax, you got things like rear curtain sync, very fast flash sync times, depending on the camera, up to about a 500th second for a focal plane and up to perhaps a 1,000th of a second for leaf shutter. Well, that would be the big advantage if you're competing with the sun, for example. Oh, yeah. Excellent. It really depends on the camera and the, and the quality of the shutter. Usually you have to get up to like a Mark III US-1 right. to get that kind of precision. Are there more channels on, on the Multimax? Multimax, yeah, there's 32. Okay. And on top of that, it's got four zones, which let me waltz you into that a second. We just came out with a new cord. Going back to sport shooters and cameras that are put in places that you can't go, we've had a pre-trigger cord available for some time, which basically when you throw a switch on the cord, it's like pressing the shutter release button halfway down. Oh, nice. So the camera is constantly ready. So when you press a test button on your Multimax, either in your hand or let's say on your camera, 
on a second camera, it's taking pictures instantly. Mm. Whereas if, if it didn't have that, if you waited for a few minutes and went to sleep, you would have to wake up and come back up and get ready and, well, you missed the shot. Well, the latest thing, which we just came out with, oh, I guess the beginning of the year, there's another plug-in area for this thing that not many people think about. It actually used to be a charge port to, to hook an AC adapter. It plugs in near the foot. It remotely turns another multi-max, same channel, end zone, on and off from that 1,600 feet distance. So oh, wow. I can place a camera up in the rafters, let's say, with everything else, and when I press one of the zone keys, A, B, C, D, let's say I use zone A and channel 17 of the 32 channels, when I press zone A in my hand, the one that's up in the ceiling that's set up for zone A 17 wakes up, and then I can press the, the test button, take as many pictures as I want. If I press the A key in my hand, it goes back to sleep. So I can leave that thing up there for days. Oh, wow. That's something that's brand new and is available for, we have cords right now for Nikon and Canon, which are the number one cameras out there now. That's terrific. One of the things that happened along the way is the European market opened up. I got another great story that I got out of them. The frequency that is used by Pocket Wizard in the United States, sort of an odd thing. It's 344 megahertz, which no one else uses. It's a very right. odd thing. And I asked them about that, and they said, well, they wanted to find something that was the least interfered with thing that they could find. So they all trooped down to New York City, and they got a, a spectral analyzer to see what different frequencies and stuff were being oh, used. That's and they great. wandered you know, through New York City and checked out to see where the holes were. And it turned out that 344 was least used of anything. And then <laughs> they did really a little cool. bit more research and they pegged it in there. And that's one of the reasons that the U.S. versions have that bulletproof nature. There's nothing bothering them at all. That's terrific. That's a really interesting way to go about finding a frequency for sure. Yeah. They're interesting guys. <laughs> I wonder now... If you go back to New York and try to check that frequency, what you'd find. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Well, what ended up happening when the European market opened up, and really what opened the European market for a lot of things like this, was the European Union. Before the European Union happened, everybody had different frequencies, for the cops used things, this, that, and the other. But what they ended up with is an assigned frequency that was 433. Mm. 433.92. That was the assigned frequency that they could use, but they could use it all over Europe. Oh, so wow. it allowed Pocket Wizard to create something just for the European market, which actually turned out to be an interesting situation that we see over here and Europe sees, that in order to produce something that could be used for wireless triggering in Europe, both Sekonic and Pocket Wizard had to create a product that could only be used there. I'm sure you're familiar. There's a, a module that Pocket Wizard makes for the Sekonic meters and a Sekonic meter that's made for that module to be used in Europe. They're used together, both the meter and the module have a little CE for uh, European use. Okay. What turned out on the other side, because of that, there is a somewhat unique thing for the United States. And on the USA version of the meter or meters and the module, it's FCC. Because of that situation in Europe, the FCC module, if you were to move from Europe to the United States with your European meter, just changing the module wouldn't get you there. They're made distinctly to be used only in Europe and only in, let's say, in the, the Americas. So... One thing that I, I really recommend, there's things that we see uh, being sold on eBay are often European versions of things that if they were to use them over here, the meter would work great until you wanted to try and trigger with it, and it uh, probably wouldn't work. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. 
there are people who like to buy things from the American market, usually from New York, and they'll bring over the FCC version of the meter and think about using, oh, gee, you know, I want to use Pocket Wizard. They'll start off with the Pocket Wizard signal that they're using at 433 is different. They'll try and put the module made for Europe into the meter and they're not compatible. Right. That's kind of a caution for people who are buying on the internet and so forth. Absolutely. So when you're buying on the internet, be sure to ask. Right. If you're in Europe that that these are CE versions. If you're in the United States, you're not going to have that happen. But if if it's on eBay, watch out. Make sure it's an FCC. That's a good point. More often than not, it's not. Is there any caution that, say, uh, you know, domestic photographers would have with taking, let's say, their Sekonic meter and pocket wizards abroad? Are there any interference issues that they should worry about, or can't they use them, or just should they just rent whatever in the country they're in? We haven't heard anything. Countries who, they're not bumping into anything that we know of. I'm sure that countries really are not happy to have them there, but it, they're <laughs> not going to be there for very long. Uh, so no one's going to launch sure. any missiles, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Nothing's blowing up. Or I'm sure the Olympics, especially like China, right. was probably pretty amazing. And Pocket Wizards had a special just before this past Olympics because previous the Olympics before that, there were so many people trying to fire off cameras on, let's say, on a 100-yard run or something like that, that the signals were sort of getting jammed up. Mm. Uh, they are now spreading the custom channel in a farther range, really recognizing that situation and helping photographers, they really have uh, unique channels. It's an interesting and almost constant care that the technical group in Pocket Wizard does with the sports world. That's pretty amazing. On Sports Shooter, they have several people who are tied in with them. Wow. Uh, Rob Galbraith is talking with them all the time. Okay. Oh, okay. Another thing that I think is pretty great about Pocket Wizards is the battery life. I mean, with two AA batteries, they're rated for, what, 60 hours? Yeah. Yeah, it depends on the style and the capacity of the battery. But, yeah, you can use, uh, 60 is is pretty much you can expect. Excellent. And you can buy AC adapters for them as well. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The only difference in the two, the newer version of the Multimax takes a special adapter cord to be able to use because I, I was talking about that special the new cord. Right. It, that new cord fits into the socket where the AC adapter is. There's the most interesting looking socket I've ever seen in my life that they've used to, to dual purpose. Okay. So you got to look for that extra cord. Right. And then I guess if you're attaching them to studio strobes, you would use... A small sink cable that goes between your pocket wizard and your strobe? Yeah, yeah. And Elmo, there's so many different cables. I'm sure. You know, that's one of the things that uh, I think everybody's going to be thrilled about on the new website. Our cable finder is pretty darn good. You just punch in what you have and it will tell you right, right away and show you pictures of it. Excellent pretty good. A lot of flash manufacturers are starting to incorporate Pocket Wizard technology. That's our, our wireless freedom group, Bowens and Profoto, Photogenic, Norman. And there's Dynalite. Have Pocket Wizard built in. That's terrific. All you need is just, let's say, a plus two and you're ready to go. That's a really great feature. We got the chance to review a couple of Profoto pieces a few weeks ago, and they had the built-in Pocket Wizard radio. And that's definitely a huge selling point, I think, for guys who are tired of tripping over cables in a studio environment. What's nice is that they learn. You can use whatever channel you want, and while you're turning the, the Pro Photos on, press your Pocket Wizard for whatever channel you have and zone, and it just learns it. That's terrific. So you can have anything you want. That's exciting. 
And with the, uh, the Multimax, you could actually, with the zones, you could have each light on a different zone. So you could do a hair light, a background light, and a key light, and a fill light separately and check each one separately. Oh. And they could press all zone buttons and fire them all at once. <laughs> that is great. I could imagine you, you might also have event photographers excited about something like that, where they have multiple setups in the same room, perhaps, or, you know, mm-hmm. the dance floor in one side of the room and main table at another side and be able to trigger different portions of the room, depending on where they're shooting. Well, depending on, I mean, the, more often than not, the plus two is perhaps about all you need because uh, as a wedding photographer and event photographer, you're not bumping into a lot of people right. with those. So you can you have your four channels and you can work with that. When you get into the crowd of people is when that Multimax really, really comes out. Mm-hmm. I know we have a, a guy in Houston that does a lot of teaching as a facility. And in that, he has several studios and he'll walk around with a Multimax and each studio will have a zone or a channel number. Perfect. You go in and set up and work from group to group to group. That's terrific. And nobody bothers each other. It's, it's pretty darn amazing to watch. And on the other side of that, if you had multiple photographers shooting in the same studio environment for the same shoot, you may have a case where you all want to be on the same channel and not have to swap cables between cameras or share devices mm-hmm. for triggering. So that's that's pretty cool too. It's just an all around great product and just want to thank you guys and give kudos to all your entire team for bringing something like that to the market with such consistency. It's just really wonderful. They're constantly working on them. It's not a done product. There's always something coming out. I know Nikon just came out with their uh, D700 and the N90, and darn if they didn't make new cables. (laughs) (laughs) There's a slight difference in the way both of them work, and we're working on new cables for them right now. Wow. But they're constantly working with sports photographers. They're working with wedding and event photographers. They're always looking to see what's happening. And if they need something, it's one of the things that the Multimax has a uh, mini USB on the side. And they are upgrading things. They're about to come out with the beta version of some software. And I'll leave Pocket Wizard with this one. One of the things that you run into when we talked about it is interference. The best way to use a Pocket Wizard is straight up and down antenna straight up and down and not near something metal and not in a corner and not too close to the floor. And there are some things that make it really work better. They have created what they call a sniffer. It is a strength indicator. Oh, okay. If you're in an area and you're not sure whether it's going to work or you seem to have a problem with something and you're near a chain link fence or something that might interfere with the new firmware, which is going to be available, it's actually available as a beta right now, you can turn the thing on and find the strongest signal by holding it and watching the screen. And when you got it, you're there, set it over and start using it. That's terrific. Let's take a few minutes to talk about the other product line that you're a manager for at Mac Group, which is Sekonic. Another big favorite of a lot of our listeners and readers at studiolighting.net as well. What can you tell us about that product line in terms of history and general offerings? Well, Sekonic and I are the same age. Started right around 1950. <laughs> Probably the one of the more interesting stories on Sekonic. There's a meter that we're still selling today, which I find amazing, is the 398. Oh, okay. And it originated as the Norwood director, and that was developed in the 40s by an Air Force officer, and this is the guy that came out with the dome, the white oh, dome. Oh, right, right. The young meters, that's the guy who invented and patented the idea of having a dome to, let's say, homogenize the reading. 
As the story goes, during the occupation of China, one of the one, a gentleman found one of these things in an airport and brought it back to Japan and gave it to the president of Sakonic, who later talked to the American group who was marketing this thing and started building it in Japan and building it for them. Oh, wow. And it's gone through several generations. The selenium cell, which it used originally, is no longer being made, and they found another cell in England for it. But what we're selling today is the 398 is not very much different than what they started selling in 1957. That's amazing. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's not the simplest thing to work, but I think the people who are using it, mostly cinematography students, as I've watched them and listened to them, they know what they're doing. They know it reads out in uh, foot candles. They turn a little dial and they match things up and they have little slides and stuff to adjust the lighting on it. But uh, they know light and they know how the meter works and they know what f-stops are. And they're very into the whole process because they probably had to learn it. Well, there's a pretty big range of products that's offered at Seconic. Can you give us a, a high-level overview of the different types in particular for photographers? Sure. Well, starting off, the smallest thing we have is a, a 208. It's called Twinmate and is a fairly small, simple match needle with a mechanical dial on the top. Next thing up is the 308, which is a really great thing for a short pocket size meter. It does flash, does ambient, does uh, reflected and, and incident light readings, cordless. Pretty amazing thing for a small meter for right around 200 bucks. That's a great beginner meter as well, especially if you need oh, to yeah. do flash metering, which I'll probably ask you to make a distinction about in a few minutes here. But mm-hmm. uh, You know, if you're going to go out in the field and you make it dirty, <laughs> this is the one to take with you. It's simple. Simple, direct, it works good, it's small, fits in your pocket, and does everything really you need to do. The next one is that 398, which, once again, is a, a major part of photographic history and really sells well. It does a pretty good job, and mostly in the cinematography market. The star of the show, probably the, the one we sell most of, is and what people know us for is the 358. And that was one of the first meters that came out with the Pocket Wizard module that you could get for it. It's an, an accessory. But I don't know of a meter of its size and price point that has so many features. Right. It just does everything. And probably for me, probably the two really nicest things in metering is the flash ratio, the, the analyze function, where it can tell you the brightness of a flash in a mixed daylight fill flash situation. So you can really trim that flash down and get it just the look you want. And once you find out what percentage, and it's like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50%, up to 100%, once you find the percentage that you like, you can reproduce that every time. Okay, now let, let's dig into that just a little bit, because I think lighting ratios are one of the most threatening things for a, a beginner lighter, someone who's just getting into lighting for the first time. Can you just take us through the process, how you would actually use the meter to do that in that scenario where you're trying to balance two light sources? Sure. Well, the way I start with everything on this one, the incident light metering, that's that white dome, tells you all about lights. Spot metering tells you about the subject. And incident light metering, one of the great things about Sakonic meters is the fact that you can raise and lower the dome. If you're doing ratio lighting, let's say two to one lighting ratio, and that's a fairly basic thing where the key light, the main light, is going to be one level, and let's call it F8, and the fill light the secondary light is going to be one stop less bright than my key, than my main light. So I crank my dome down, 
and now it can only read what's directly in front of it. And I point it at the light, and I get a reading. And in this case, I want to adjust it to get F8, and I'm taking that reading right from where the subject is, pointing back at my main key light, adjust it, get F8, spin around to my fill light, and I want to adjust that so that it is 5.6. Now, when I'm done, I crank it back out so the dome is now completely out, and I hold that in front of my subject, point it back at the camera, and take another reading. And what I'm going to end up with is F8 in about a half for my total exposure. And I shoot at that, and I got it. Very simple. Yeah. Uh, One of the interesting things that this meter has is a thing called brightness difference. If you don't want to work with F numbers or you're working with odd things like F8.3 and you can't adjust it and you want to get a a difference in that of maybe a little bit more than two to one, you can press a button on the front. It's 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 an AE uh, averaging brightness difference button. So I take my reading for the main light, I press this button and it reads out an EV. So okay. if I want a one-stop difference, I adjust my light until I get one. I don't have to figure out what F number it was. If I want a one-and-a-half-stop difference, it would say 1.5. So for the purpose of metering, an EV and a stopper are the same. Are the same. Yeah. Great. But it's a way of perhaps making it a little simpler. Absolutely. Uh, if your main light happens to be the sun, you have two different types of lights, one which is continuous, that's the sun, and one which is not which is flash in just a brief instant, something that you really can't see very well. The meter sees both, and it will tell you what the total exposure is on its digital readout. Off to the side and on the bottom, there's an analog scale on the bottom. There's a small percentage number on the right-hand side of the exposure numbers that will tell you how much of that total exposure was just flash. Okay. So if it's 100%, You have a 100% flash picture, there is no daylight, and things just go black in the background if you had a daylight shot. As you go down in numbers, the available light comes up, and generally fill flash is less than 50%. So somewhere between 30 and 40%, you end up with a pretty interesting fill flash. When you get between somewhere 20 or 20 to 10%, it's just a catch light. Right. But what's really nice about it is that repeatability. That's really what you use a meter for is repeatability. Once I set up, I can do it again and again and again. And when you're shooting for money, they don't pay you to to mess around. It just (laughs) has to be now. It has to be done. So you can walk in and do that lighting ratio very quickly, take your exposure, and just start shooting. That's a very good point. You mentioned that something kind of in passing that I'd like to make an extra point about because I get a lot of emails from people who own light meters that maybe are not flash meters and they're confused about why it won't work in the studio. Can you just talk to that kind of a concern? It's a it's an ambient light meter. It's an ambient light meter, right. Continuous light, but not flash. A flash meter is one that is capable of reading a brief pulse of light. Ambient light meters often, till recently, weren't silicon photocells, didn't have a computer to be able to read that brief light pulse. That back in the day, there were CDS cells, there were sil- uh, selenium cells, things that just didn't have the kind of response rate that the new silicon photocells, and that's really what newer meters are using anyway. That thought of not having a meter that reads flash, there are very few meters that you can buy today that don't. Right. If we got in, especially in the past 10 years, almost every meter that you can buy would have some kind of flash capability, flash reading capability. Excellent. For us, that carries down to, we have one, actually two. 308 is the meter that starts flash reading capability. The one below it, the 208, does not. 
Okay. Well, maybe a more common situation is where people are saying, why can't I just use the meter that's built into my camera in the studio setting? Okay. Also a good question. Maybe someday you can. There are sort of flash meters built into cameras because they are controlling them automatically, but there's no way for a studio flash puts out an amount of light which you set full power. Some have switches, full power, half power, quarter power, eighth power, but there's no way for the camera to adjust that lighting duration. So it just fires off. The best you can hope for is you can wire it up or you can use Pocket Wizard to fire the flash, but it's only going to fire at the power level that you set on the generator or power pack or on the back of the head on the flash. Right. So you couldn't typically put a camera in auto mode and generally be using it in manual mode and exposure is being set based on the amount of flash that you're delivering. Correct. There's no way for the camera to communicate the flash that it should turn off, and the switching mechanisms in the flash aren't set up to do something like that. So there's nothing that I know of yet that's able to do that. Excellent. The two higher-end meters that you offer, what makes them stand apart? I guess specifically the 758DR being that it's not necessarily a cinematic meter. Well, the DR actually does have some cine features in it, but there is a special cine meter. The 758 is also a spot meter. The reason to go up to the 758 would be wanting to know more about your subject. As I think I said a little bit earlier, an incident light meter can only really tell you about the lights. It can tell you it's reading the brightness that falls on that little white ball. For the meter, that is the subject. So when you're taking reading, you're holding that little white ball at the subject, pointing back the camera whatever lights fall on that is the same light that falls on your subject, and it's giving you a reading that produces a good exposure for the entire range. I like to think of that more as it's telling you what 18% of the middle tone exposure is. What a spot reading does, something that we didn't talk about, the classic thought is all meters are designed to give you good exposure reading for a mid-tone. A lot of people think that this is 18% reflectance. A spot meter is designed to do that also. Whatever you point it at, it thinks it's a mid-tone. What's interesting about the 758 is not just that, it is reading the reflection that's coming back off the subject. And what it allows you to do is read the brightest part of the subject mm. and put it into memory. It's got uh, nine memories built into it, and then take another oh. reading of the darkest part of the subject and put that into memory and you can see what the range of scene brightness is. Something that can happen in an incident light reading, it's telling you where the middle is and that's where most things live, that's where your subject lives, but there could be some details in the bright area of the scene that will completely wash out. And in, in the digital world, you lost it. If you're using a spot meter, you can actually see the range, how bright and dark the scene is, and the thing that I find totally amazing on this, things that we used to do in the, in the film world, I'm really getting into this, we would test films out, we would find out what the range that this film can actually reproduce. Oh, okay. uh, and in the world of slide film, it was usually about five stops. And if you got beyond five stops, you were, the, you were the black or burned out. Digital world is, has actually gotten a little bit better but the testing procedure, uh, Sakonic came out with this real interesting thing called digital transfer software. They developed Target, which is actually separate. You've got to buy it separately from the meter. But you can take a picture of this Target using your camera, your digital camera, take a series of pictures, put it through the software, and it will tell you what the dynamic range of your camera is. Wow. Then you can take that and plug it into the meter, and it produces a line 
that's on top of their analog scale. And then as you take readings, you can actually see graphically whether the exposure, whether the light in the scene is going to be too bright or too dark. Oh, that's terrific. And then make adjustments to that. Things that I always said that owning a meter assumes that you're going to do something with what you just learned. Right. So you might use some fill flash. You might use a reflector card to pick up a shadow. If you've watched some of these cinematography things, you might use a scrim, looks like a white bed sheet, over top of the subject to hold the highlights down a little bit. You might use a big black card to subtract some light, but you can control things to look exactly the way you want them to look and know exactly what you're going to get because you're using a meter. That's a great feature. Yeah, you're just literally measuring as if you were measuring inches and building a house, you're building a picture by following the numbers because photography is actually very simple. If you follow the numbers and there's a specific series of brightness levels for different types of shots, Mm -hmm. all the numbers you can't miss. If you have a good ruler or a good measuring device like a light meter, you got it. All you have to do is get the smile right and the pose good, and you're in. (laughs) Right. A spot meter will tell you where the edges are. It, le- it tells you about the subject. And like I said, the analyzing function on this, the using the DTS software, the digital transfer software, and the target allows you to do what I used to do in film and processing stuff. It took a, a day at least for processing and getting back and doing my testing. I can do it in about 10 minutes with a digital camera. That's great. Interestingly enough, every digital camera is a little bit different. If you change lenses, the amount of dynamic range is going to be a little different. Hmm. Using RAW or TIFF or JPEG is going to be different. So you can build in. uh, There's three different patterns that you can build in in the meter. And within the software, you can have as many as you want. And you can download three at a time as you're using it. Oh, that's amazing. That's cool. Yeah, it is. It, It is very interesting to watch. And it's hard to, to mess up if you, you know if you're going to be outside the range and you can literally just shift, let's say, your exposure up a little bit to, in, to include the highlight that you would have burned out. So how does the display look? How does it indicate to the photographer that they're in or out of range? You mentioned the line. is It shows the actual metered average value, but then you take two readings with the spot meter in order to see the upper and on the bottom of the meter, there is an analog scale, and the analog scale can be switched from either F numbers or a contrast scale starting out at zero in the center and going up and seven stops plus overexposed and seven stops down. Okay. So what I can do is take an incident light reading, find out where the middle is first, and because the meter is both an incident and a reflected, I can switch from incident and take a reading put it into memory, and it has a button that allows me to sign, assign that reading as a midtone. So I tell me oh, I see. this is a midtone. Then I switch over to spot, take a reading highlight, put it into memory, a reading the lowest thing I want in the shot, put it into memory, and it all comes up right on top of, little. it comes up as indicators on that analog scale at the bottom. And if you've done your testing, you'll have a, another line that runs along just above that analog line that is the dynamic range of your camera. That's terrific. And wherever those little points fall, that's your exposure. That You know if the highlight is outside the range, that side of the line will blink at you. Let you wow. know you need to do something about this. Well, that sure beats a histogram then. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, one of the things that I was promoting earlier, I'm going to be doing this a lot more this year, is a sort of biasing function. If you do your test, your digital transfer software test, and you find out that you have, let's say, seven and a half stops, which is pretty darn good. In fact, that's great in your range. Then it'll tell you from the, the mid-tone out to the highlight and then mid-tone to the shadow area. And you find out that from the mid-tone to the highlight, when it starts burning out, it's 3.2 stops. Okay. One of the nice things that the 758 has is a dual ISO button system. At one time, they would assign one button to the film, a regular film in your camera, and the other button to a Polaroid. Now the button is maybe less important, but it's come back. You can also set that button to be a, an exposure factor. Mm. And what you can do is plug that 3.2 stop exposure factor in under that button. If you think of what is a mid-tone, if you look in a scene, you know it, it is sort of a grayish thing, but it's, it's something that people have to think about is subjective. Right. If you think about what is the brightest thing you want in the picture, a bright tone is a lot easier to find that you want in the picture than a mid-tone. Sure. And what you can do is spot meter read the bright thing you want in the picture and then press the ISO 2 key once you set that that up. It will chase the exposure reading down to give you a mid-tone exposure Based off of what your highlight is. Based on the highlight. Oh, that's great. So that whatever you said you want to be the highlight will be right at the top. And you're guaranteeing and not overexposing it, which is is huge for, especially in the digital world. Yep. Everything will fall below that. It'll make, it'll maintain that highlight at the top. And there's the group who shoots to the right. If you're doing raw, that sort of crowds everything as far up on on the right as you can without falling off. Absolutely. And makes it really simple. All you do is point at the brightest thing you want, take a reading, press your ISO 2 key, whatever the, the shutter speed and aperture combination comes up, that's it. That's nice, because 18% gray can be so subjective. Yeah. Or, or at least you have to train yourself to look for it. Mm-hmm. Early on, like I said, I'm, I am not a young guy. I used to hang out with some really interesting photographers who used to wander around and tell you what the exposure was with things. <laughs> <laughs> they've done so well, and you pull out a meter and take a reading and go, yep. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing uh, how, how things have changed. Now we're all chimping. Right. Well, <laughs> and, and that actually brings up a, a question that I did want to run by you. And uh, in general, we speak with all sorts of photographers. Uh, some guys are, are meter freaks, and other guys are, you know, I haven't turned my meter on for a year I can't tell you if the battery works in it or not. Right. Uh, generally speaking, when you run into those guys who say meters are no longer needed, perhaps, what would be your response? <laughs> well, you know, it, I don't like surprises that much. A good photographer, when you sit down and talk with them, a good photographer knows. And it's, I, I mentioned this to, to my group over at Mac, and they look at me and go, what? They know what the exposure is. They know when they, when they push the shutter release button... They know exactly what's going to come out. They do very little retouching. They don't have to do a lot of stuff post-production because it's all set. They know the ratio's right. They know the exposure's right. They know the background's great. They know everything about this. They just know it's going to be good. Where people who are not are often surprised and do an awful lot of post-production stuff and try and pull things out. And you know, it's they're they're not 
as happy as you might think they are. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> That's where the ugliness happens. <laughs> I sure like simple. A meter will do that for you. Uh, I have a friend who is the master carpenter, and carpenters are using tools that are probably more a hundred or more years old. Carpenters still use a good level, a good sharp rule, a good ruler, a good sharp knife, that sort of thing. And real good photographers are using they use a good meter. They're on manual mode. They're using lights that are controllable by them. They have control over everything, and they know what they're doing. When they push the button, it's a done deal. They're just recording what they have created. What they created, right. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to put it, I think. The other way around, you're you're not the one that's in control necessarily, if you haven't said all that stuff with an intention. I have a good friend who's a wedding photographer, and, and we've talked about, I brought the word chimping, which is now becoming, it's probably going to be in the dictionary soon. <laughs> right. A lot of people are starting to use the, you know, the plastic boxes and stuff like that on their flashes on their camera. Right. And I guess they're okay enough. I mean, but you get sort of flat lighting, and mm. everything looks the same. The stuff that I see coming out of the guys who are doing off-camera is worth the money. It's just really pretty. Absolutely. And if you're seriously out there trying to compete, you need to get your flash off your camera. Right. And the next thing up is having a meter to control it, or at least to set it up. Uh, Generally, you'll find out that a wedding or event photographer will set their flashes up using a meter at, let's say, at 5 feet, 10 feet, 15 or closer, and know that at 10 feet I get F8, and at 5 feet I'm F11. All right. Set up for that, and then uh, you know have their assistants move to certain distances in their setup. But they set up originally with a meter, right. so they're they're working with that. But once again, they know when they push the shutter button, it's not a surprise what they're going to get when they when they look at their work. They don't have to do it again. They don't have to, to take a picture and look and go, no, not quite, not quite, not quite, not quite. <laughs> okay, those are the guys who are taking three thousand pictures, right? <laughs> well, we're still talking about that. We have gotten some emails from people, and I've I've actually seen this at events where I've worked with a group of photographers. We had an email that someone said that they got a Sakonic L358, which is the one that I use, and they meter their light. Let's say they get to F8, and they set their camera at F8, and they take their picture, but the picture is either underexposed or overexposed. What do you tell that person to how do they adjust or can they adjust their light meter or their camera or how do they get it so that F8 on the light meter is actually what they're getting in the camera? And kind of a part two to that, I've seen where I've done meter readings and on my camera, it'll be F8, but say another shooter that's going up to it, they may need to set their camera to say F5, 6 to make sure that it it matches. How do you get this whole calibration of everything working correctly? Well, a simple a simple quick calibration is using the histogram and slightly right of center if you shot an 18% gray card and check the reading on that against the reading on, and then just hold the meter and we're talking about manual flash we're not talking about auto flash right correct yeah we're talking about say a studio strobe right because a lot of people think that a handheld meter can read automatic flash it cannot if you put in your flash in M mode and it's putting out the power level that you want that you directed to do. But if you're using studio flashes, you can put your gray card in the scene, put the meter in front of it, take a reading, set that on your camera, take your shot, 
see where it comes up on the, uh, the line comes up on your histogram in the back. It should be just slightly right of center, just slightly. If it is not, then you adjust the meter. And to do that, there are two ways. There's a calibration mode and exposure adjustment mode in the meter. Simply, if you're setting your meter up for your camera and it's going to be that way for a long time, you press both of the ISO buttons and then you turn it on and you're in calibration mode. And let's say you need to increase your exposure by, let's say, half a stop. That would be pretty amazing. But you turn the dial until you got 0.5 and then you release the two ISO keys and the meter is now tuned up for your camera. Okay. But, but that would be a quick way. And then at that point, you want to take some readings to see if it's right. And you might use a step wedge uh, and, a, and a color chart to take a look at it and view it. You could go into Photoshop if you got the time to get the right tones. But, you know, down and dirty in the field, 18% gray card, you can get real close. Oh, great. The Lumosphere, you can, on, like, say, the L358, and I believe on the higher one as well, you can use that as in the raised mode or the drop-down mode. Right. Talk to us a little bit about why someone would use each of those settings. You'll notice that people are three-dimensional. We are round things. The light that falls on this Lumosphere, it's reading all of the light that hits, say, three-dimensional thing from the top hair light, a key light, a fill light, and it homogenizes them out to one single reading. And that's what the, the dome is used for. It's really for the exposure reading, used for exposure readings of things which are three-dimensional like people. To take that reading, you're going to hold the meter in the light that the subject is in. Let's say you just hold it right under their chin and point it back at the camera and take a reading. Crank it down and make the dome retract. And now we're talking about if it's for exposure, it's for flat things. If you're taking pictures of art, books, things like that, flat things, you would use it for that. Or, in, in most cases, taking ratio readings for lighting, which is what we were talking about earlier. If you're doing two-to-one lighting ratios and doing a hair light, and you're trying to read one light at a time. If you retract the ball, it can only see what's directly in front of it. It won't see the side lighting. So you're looking at the main light and then only the fill light and then only the hair light and then the background light. So you can look at each one, but back when you're taking your exposure reading, raise the ball, hold it under the chin, point it back at the camera, take the reading. Fantastic. One thing that I've always liked about the Seikonic website was that you have an awful lot of educational information there. And a lot of what we talked about tonight, someone would be able to get even more information on the website about metering tips and techniques and all that sort of thing. What else can folks find in the education section? Well, right now, uh, one of the things that we started this year was our blog. And I think as you have found out, there's a gentleman in Phoenix, Mark Wallace, who has produced some very interesting videos on how to use meters. We are finding people around and putting them on our blog and featuring them. One of the biggest things that we're going to be doing because we introduced a color meter, we're going to have a little more education on why and how to use a color meter. I was talking earlier about using flash off camera in an event or wedding situation. We're going to talk about that a little bit more and how to do it and show photographers and work where it's being done, and you can listen to them talk about how they do it and why that's important. There's going to be a lot more feature articles on photographers and how they do it. Like I said, the, the blog is something we're working on, written information, more background, how-to stuff. But we're constantly working on that, and we're adding more FAQs, 
just everything across the board, actually. That's excellent. One of the things you just mentioned was that you have some information for Keller meters. In what scenarios would you use a Keller meter? Is it mostly for cinematography or does it have application in digital photography as well? Okay. Interestingly, yeah, Sakonic did come out with a color meter this year to, I think, the surprise of an awful lot of people because they figured custom white balance would do it. And in a lot of cases, if you have one light source, it will. It'll do a great job. But if you have more than one light source, you have more than one color. And in that thought, if you're in a studio and you're using different types of lights, different brands or light boxes or light modifiers, they're changing the color of the light. Mm. And if you are looking for absolute true colors, I saw something I found interesting. Someone shot a family group, and they're all wearing white. If you looked very carefully on one side of the scene, the closer you got to the right side, the bluer the white looked on the edges, and the warmer it was on the other side. And they didn't, hadn't thought about the fact that the lights are different colors. We found a couple types of lights, which I'm not going to name, if you reduce the power on them, they get warmer and warmer and warmer. Right. Just by reducing the power level. If you're working indoors with lighting and you have fluorescent and flash or tungsten and flash, you have two very distinctive looking things and you end up with an island of white, your subject in the foreground, and then this color that just sort of goes green on you, goes orange on you. Right. People are starting to get used to this, but you don't have to do that. What's interesting in the old days and today, color metering is so much simpler than it used to be. In days past, that would be for film. Generally, you would filter everything in the scene and perhaps put a filter on your lens, which then reduced the light coming back to your film, and then take the picture. For digital, absolutely, you're going to use the custom white balance sooner or later. But you'd walk into a situation and look around at the lighting and find the biggest color, the biggest type of light that you can't get to, you can't change, you can't afford to do anything. And now what you're doing is light source filtration. This is something you see a lot in cinematography. They do a lot of, they'll put gels at windows and things like that, but you are changing some color that you walk into that is in the room, but you're trying to get down to one tone. And it doesn't matter what color the tone is. To give you an example, if I'm walking into a fluorescent lit scene, the primary lights are fluorescent lights, and I have my flash with me, what I want to do is off-balance my flash to green. Right. And then do a custom white balance. And then when I take my picture, you don't notice that there's a flash there, and you didn't notice that the green goes away. It just looks great. In a church situation, something that if you have a really nice church with lots of warm lighting and stuff, you don't want to completely fix it. But I can go in and take a reading of the different tungsten lights that are in there, which are yellow-orange, and then take my flash and balance it in that direction. And generally, you want to go about 80%. Okay. Don't go completely, because if you do, then the lights, when I do my, my white balance, those wonderful warm lights that give you that wonderful feeling in the church are white. <laughs> it looks like a refrigerator. Right. <laughs> so you want to leave them a little warm. Interestingly enough, color metering is both science and art. If you go exactly what the meter is or it tells you to do, you just did a scientific correction and it's fixed. Okay. The art is how much do you fix it? You walk up to it and back up a little bit. That makes a lot of sense just from experience of mixed lighting conditions. But 
the metering process for color, and we talked about ambient and spot and normal flash and light meters. What's different about metering color? Because I, I'm trying to imagine how you do ambient and mixed light with color temperature. How is that handled? Okay. Well, a, a exposure meter has one photocell, and it is filtered to, actually, its strongest reading is in the green area, but it's filtered to read a, a specific range of lighting, which is what your eye is sensitive to. A color meter has three photocells, and they're filtered red, green, and blue. And what's interesting about the Sakonic meter, the film sees differently than your eyes do. Up until this particular meter, all of the color meters were, were created for taking pictures with film. Mm. Uh, your eyes and digital cameras see the same. It's a, a visual color spectrum is what digital cameras are set up, which is different than film. Okay. And what the Sakonic company did was create a meter that does both. If you were to take a Kelvin color temperature reading, which is the basic uh, yardstick number that people use, and you take it at its digital setting and then switch over to its film sensitivity setting, you'll get different numbers because film sees differently than digital does. And if you were to use a film setting in your digital camera, it's going to be off. You can actually set in digital cameras you have in your white balance settings Kelvin numbers. Right. They correspond directly to what the meter does. What's interesting, once again, with measuring color today, in the old days, you had to do all kinds of color tests. You had to find what every film had a signature color. Fuji mm. tended to be a little bit green. Kodak, ectochrome slide film would be a little blue. Kodachrome might be a little on the warm side. In the, under the exact same lighting and the exact same filtration, they'd be a little bit different. So you need to do a lot of testing. And there are memories and things for that to memorize those settings. And if you're still shooting film, God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> For digital, half the meter you don't even have to use. You just literally go in and you want to get all the colors. It's more like a color comparator. You take all your lights and make them look like one. So if you, you rented a bunch of strobes and they're all different colors, you would take either generally orange or blue gel, put them over each flash to get the exact same number, whatever the number was. It doesn't matter. And you take your custom white balance off the center and you get perfect white. So if you were in a warehouse, let's say with fluorescent or some sort of or sodium vapor, sodium vapor or lights, vapor, right? All those things. Yeah. Uh, do you point the meter at the light source or do you have to you know, turn one light set off and read and then turn the others? You know, can they be on at the same time or no? Well, there's an interesting thought. Yes, you can. Okay. And one of the things, you can do layers. You could filter for one layer at a time or do a custom white balance for that one layer at a time or, or get a Kelvin number from the meter and put it into your camera and take a picture for that source, switch one off, switch the next one on, do the next layer, and then put them all together. If you sit down with an architectural photographer, they'll basically tell you that if they have time, they filter like crazy when they get there. All the lights that they can find. Yes. Yeah. They'll put big sheets of gel on the windows. They'll do all kinds of things. Talk about one, actually, today that something I hadn't thought of was all the different window coatings that are available today to reflect all the heat and light and stuff. They are all kinds of colors hmm. that you don't notice. And he takes shots with, you know, you spent all that money for your landscaping in the back. You would like to show that. So he goes in, takes a reading, finds out what the color of the window is, off-balances flash, 
adjusts all that. So when you look at, let's say, a bathroom or something like that with a great view, the window just goes right into the backyard. Wow. You don't have a blue window or an orange window or some weird thing. Oh, that's terrific. So they work really hard up front to fix the big stuff. Bill, you've just been an amazing source of information. I want to thank you so much for spending time with us and explaining your product line and and just giving some of your expertise with us this evening. It's been terrific. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Well, that's all we have for this episode of LightSource. The brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other LightSource episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the LightSource Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash LightSource. You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time. Bye-bye. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.